through John's book, you start realizing this hour has now arrived. 1223, the hour has come for this. 27, but for this purpose I came to this hour. 13.1, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. And 17.1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So we're being told the hour hasn't come. Finally, it's here. There's something monumental about this hour that's happening that we're supposed to be looking forward to because they talk about it throughout the entire book. But what is he foreshadowing? 129, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the 219, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 314, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And for those of you unfamiliar with that story, when the Israelites were in their wanderings, um, they, God punished them uh, because they were being, again, uh, they were revolting. And Jesus made a serpent. Uh, God sent snakes among them, and as they were bitten, they would die unless they looked upon this serpent, which was raised from the earth. Um, and it brought them salvation when they looked upon it. And Jesus is now putting himself into that same symbolism that he too will do the same thing for those who look upon him. 8.22, so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And for those of you who were here weeks ago when we talked about irony, um, here's another prime example of irony in the book of John. Certainly he's not going to kill himself, but that is in a form um, exactly what happens. Uh, Not suicide in that sort of context, but Jesus clearly ends up laying his life down. 8.28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and I do nothing on my own. But I say these things as the Father instructed me. Pivotal to pick up the fact that Jesus isn't doing this on his own will or accord. Every time he mentions his death just about, he focuses on he's doing what the Father asked him to do. He's being an obedient servant um, to his will. And as you won't necessarily see in John, but you'll see in others, Jesus struggles with this fact. He wrestles with it. It's difficult for him at times. Um, But he always does what the Father asks of him. 12.7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, This is when Jesus was anointed with the perfume while he's gathering around. uh, They're having uh, dinner at one of the Jewish leaders' houses. And they get on, or Judas primarily gets on to her and says, why did you waste such abundance when we could have sold it to the poor? And Jesus says, no, you leave her alone. You'll always have the poor with you. But she's anointing me for something important, specifically for my burial. 12.32-33, and if I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. Now he was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. At first read, this doesn't, it's not clear what he's talking about, but again, going back to the serpent, or the, the staff that Moses lifted up, the serpent he raised, Jesus too will be raised up from the earth. Very physical uh, representation of him being lifted up onto the cross is what he's foreshadowing. 1333, little children, I am still with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And we just read this a moment ago when he says to the Jews, and then their response is, oh, he's not going to kill himself, is he? This is certainly what they're having in their mind, because they would have been there for that dialogue. And you can only imagine what they're thinking in their head. We cannot come. Um, is he re- referencing back to somehow, you know, leaving this earth, somehow dying? What is this context? And then 1430-31, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in regard to me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. And for any of you who have ever spent any time in some of the commentaries, uh, it's kind of funny because when they talk about this, get up, let's go from here, you're then given three chapters of dialogue. It's like they forgot to get up and go anywhere. 
Um, a lot of times the, the implication is that the, uh, the upper room discourse, is, is John doesn't give you a chronological set of events. He's not telling you that he said this and then sat there for another two hours and then they got up. Most likely, the end of chapter 14 immediately precedes the beginning of chapter 18, uh, where they're in the garden, Judas comes, and then the crucifixion, the passion events begin. But notice specifically, interestingly, what's happening here. Jesus is telling them something evil is coming. Something powerfully wicked and horrible is on its way. And if you've been paying attention in the book of John, you've seen what Jesus has been doing with the evil in this world. He's been healing the sick. He's been curing the lame man. He's been bringing sight to the blind, both physically and very much metaphorically. He's been combating all the symptoms that death and destruction, evil and violence has done to our world. And Satan's not happy about it. Satan wants this to stop. The evil wants it to go away. And so what you're meant to see as you come to the cross is the entire embodiment of the evil in this world and all of its power is being put onto Jesus, not Jesus taking it necessarily, but Satan attacking him with it, using all of his might to bring down the promised Messiah so that his mission will fail. And so, and that's when you kind of come to Peter and you think of him when it's, you know, time to fight, but... Is it it really time to fight? Uh, Peter stands as a prime example of what it means to a form of how not to fight. You're not pulling out your swords. You're not not throwing fists. um, But you're humbly doing what the Father has asked you to do. Because in that, you you fight in a way that no one else would have conceived. Um, And Jesus obviously knew what he was doing. Um, I think a really important aspect of the book of John, because I want to give credit to John. Um, It's really easy to focus on the death and what that means um, and all the things that we've used in our context and our um, tradition over the years on on how we interpret that. But I want to give credence to John because he stands out as an outlier amongst the four Gospels. Um, For those of you not familiar with the word synoptic, uh, that refers to the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And then John is is unique. Um, Some of the differences you'll see in this Passion Week is that John gives no time to the Garden of Gethsemane prayer. All the other ones will give an account of Jesus in agony, suffering, and pain as he's praying to the Father for this not to happen if there's any other way. John doesn't spend a moment on that. He doesn't allude to it. He doesn't hint at it. John also is the only one that gives us the dialogue between Anus and uh, who was the high priest or pre-high priest um, and that dialogue where uh, the officer strikes Jesus in the face um, and Jesus rebuttals. Uh, Jesus speaks back to that. Uh, The other Gospels don't give us that. They don't have an account of that. Um, There is a huge, uh, not huge, I guess, in our literary sense, but compared to the other Gospels, they make no mention of this big dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. John takes his time to give you this back and forth between those two men, whereas in the other ones, Jesus doesn't say anything. I I believe he says one phrase when they ask, you know, uh, are you going to say it? I forget the wording, but it's just three words. You know, it's, it, it is what it is or something like that. But Jesus does not rebuttal in those dialogues. But with Pilate, he does, at least twice that we're told. Um, and it's significant. And then you also get this longer back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. You don't get that to the same degree in the other Gospels. Um, with a lot more uh, subtleties, a lot more innuendos, Um, a lot more animosity, which John really cranks up the fire on uh, that the others do not. 
There is no mention of Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross. Every other gospel specifically mentions it. Uh, John does not. He makes no indication that Jesus did not carry his cross. Um, And that's not to be taken as a historical fallacy, but it's to be meant to be taken. John is trying to highlight certain aspects. Um, John has a theology behind his gospel, and he wants you to see it, um, because that's his prime focus, and we're going to touch on that here in just a minute. Um, We also don't see in the other ones where they talk about uh, when Pilate writes the inscription above the head of Jesus, um, that he, Jesus of Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and then the Pilate, and then the Jews are upset about this. They say, no, you need to say that he said he was, and then Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. Uh, That whole dialogue is not found in any of the other gospels. Uh, Jesus is concerned for his mother, entrusting her to the disciple whom he loved while on the cross. Um, We don't get any mention of that in any of the other Gospels. There is multiple scripture fulfillments that John specifically calls out. Some of the other Gospels will will hint at them. There may be one or two, but John has four of them, and he actually quotes uh, two passages of those four. And it's interesting because, I don't know how many of you have spent time with it, but Um, You have where he talks about the garments being divided. Um, You have where he calls out, I am thirsty. You have them talking about that his bones were not broken and that his side was pierced. Of the four, the one where he calls out, I am thirsty, is highly debated. There is no specific reference given. There's no real word-for-word correlation to the Old Scripture or the Old Testament that's being used. There's a lot of folks who believe that it's a culmination of a lot of different things. Um... I have my certainly my own ideas of what I think it is, um, but but one thing that at least I think John's trying to hone in on. I mean, think of all the passages where Jesus says, "You know, come to me if you are thirsty," uh, where he talks about being in an overabundance of water, and it's hard not to see somewhat of an inverse of that now. Um, Jesus is being poured out. Uh, that very life-giving water, which he wanted to give to all people, is now being used to extinguish the flames um, of hell, essentially, that's being poured upon him. And it's almost like he's being poured out, and he's so now um, exhausted and, 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 and out of water that he's thirsty. Not physically, I'm sure he was, though, uh, but much more uh, metaphorically, that he's, that he's giving all he has to the life of the world. Uh, the final cry of accomplishment, when he says, it is finished, uh, the other gospels, some of them will say, you know, he cried out with a loud voice and then he died, but only John tells us the final thing in which he said, um, it is finished, and we'll hopefully have time in a moment to touch on that. But just bear in mind that that word finished does not mean, oh, it's over, oh, we're done. Uh, but it has connotations of it's completed, it's accomplished, the mission was successful. He wasn't, you know, finally to the point where he had no more energy and he quit, but he finished what the Father had sent him to do. And so you'll notice, if you spend time with any of these, the ultimate theme that John is honing in on is that the abundant power and authority of this passion event was Jesus had it the whole time. It was never taken from him. No one else ever exhorted it over him. He was in full control at every moment, at every dialogue, at every aspect, at every moment in time. And, and no one else was. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, you don't get the garden. Um, at least it's, it's, it's suspected why you don't get that garden scene. Because certainly that showed the humanity of Jesus. How much he suffered and how much agony he went through. You don't get Simon carrying the cross because John wants you to see a, a Messiah that is resilient, that is strong, that sees adversity and faces it head on. Yes, sir. Oh, yes.
Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so the comment being that by the time John wrote his gospel several decades later, um, the humanity of Jesus had been overplayed almost. And so John was very much coming from a theological point of view, saying, you know, this Jesus, while he was fully human, he was also fully God in the flesh. Um, and that that, you know, Jesus' authority and power should not be underplayed. Um, and so John, yeah, heavily focused on the, the divinity of Christ. And yeah, because you don't, you don't get those same statements in John about, I could have called 10,000 angels. You know, put your sword away. Those who pull by the sword, die by the sword. You know, and, uh, you know, and also he tells to Pilate, well, in John, he says this phrase um, about how if, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting so that this didn't happen. But my kingdom is not of this world. Again, yes, pulling on that same thing. Uh, my kingdom is outside of this place that you don't understand. Um, and it's soon to come into this place. Um, by the fulfillment of the cross. And so we move on then to, uh, as you start in chapter 18, you'll see the trial of Jesus begins. And I use the word trial uh, hesitantly because that's not exactly what happened. Um, Estimated sequence of events of that day or that morning was first he's brought, obviously he's arrested in the garden, then he's brought to Annas to have that dialogue that we see in John. Um, He's believed to have gone to the Sanhedrin where he saw where he was put before Caiaphas. And then he's sent for the first time to Pilate then after that, he goes to Herod, and Herod does his goofy thing, and then he's sent back to Pilate, and then from there, he's sent to Golgotha for crucifixion. And it's, it's, it's odd to note, and I'm not sure if this is helpful to anyone or not, but you, you sort of had two high priests at the time. Um, Ky- Annas was the high priest, or Annas, sorry, um, but he was actually um, removed from office by Pilate's predecessor, and so he served roughly 6 to 15 AD, and then Caiaphas is put in in charge, and Caiaphas is his son-in-law. Um, but just think of what that would have been. <laughs> think of the implications of that from Israel's uh, law point of view. Could they have two high priests? No, they couldn't. Um, from the very beginning of this trial, you see there's all kinds of issues. There's all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of unusualities in this, in this dialogue, and this stands out notably. Um, typically in the time, um, Annas was seen as the real high priest because he was removed from office because you were supposed to serve until you die, but technically Caiaphas was in the puppet high priest uh, serving Rome. So just an odd side note to remember. So he was likely uh, not taken to the temple. This would have happened likely early morning or maybe late, late at night. Um, and so the, the idea is that he wasn't taken to the temple, but probably to somebody's home. Um, and the fact that this happened at night would have been highly unusual. Um, in the Mishnah, it talks about that if you do proceedings outside of normal regulations, um, they would have considered it illegal. And any verdict render would have been thrown out um, and not enforceable uh, without very rare exception. Um, <coughs> and likely, what's happening here is you're meant to see that the proceedings that follow are not normal. Uh, these people clearly had an agenda. They wanted to push it in. They didn't care about what was the, the right or wrong way to go about things because they, had a, they wanted Jesus to die. They wanted him to go away, and they didn't care that it broke protocol. Um, but notice in that dialogue, even with them, uh, Jesus takes control rather quickly. Uh, he, 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 he becomes the interviewer almost um, in this inter- intercourse between them because he says, uh, why are you asking me? So when they first started grilling him, they were asking him about his disciples and about his teachings. You know, and Jesus responds essentially, why don't you ask all the people who heard me teach all the time in the synagogues and in the temple because you were there too. You know what I said. 
And again, they have a, a very obvious agenda of what they're going about. They don't care about the truth. They care about grilling Jesus, but Jesus turns it back on them. Um, again, in stark contrast to the synoptics where Jesus remains fairly quiet throughout the whole time, but not in this discourse. John is showing you that Jesus has the power and authority to question these people because he is the ultimate authority. And again, after they strike him, you know, Jesus doesn't say, why did you strike me sort of insultingly? He says it as, as from a point of view of, of their, their own legality. What law do you cite that says I did something wrong that you should strike me? And of course they have no rebuttal. Um, They were just obviously clearly very angry um, and being driven by passions, not by um, a clear train of thought. We're not going to go into much detail, but Peter's uh, denial of Jesus is put in here uh, rather quickly. And there's a lot of multifaceted meanings that you can get from that. Uh, but one of them, as far as it relates to Jesus, is that you're, you're given a contrast between when Jesus is asked questions, um, he remains faithful to the Father. Um, Peter does not. Uh, Peter fails the test. And you're meant to see that as though Jesus, standing firm, uh, that even though you know, everyone seemed to have abandoned him, um, you, you know, some, some scholars will argue that it seems like even God abandoned him, although I don't agree with that. Um, but Jesus was standing steadfast, although fully alone, uh, no, one, no one by his side, um, yet he's, he's, the, he's the ultimate uh, savior that we needed in that moment. Um, as you continue in the trial, uh, again with this theme of irony, um, it's riddled with irony. Uh, it's almost like every, every sentence is just full of it. Uh, you see the Jews, uh, they won't enter Pilate's home because they want to remain clean for the Passover, yet highly ironic because the very symbol, meaning, and purpose of the Passover they're trying to kill. Jesus is the ultimate representation of the Passover, and they're completely blind to it. They want him to die so they can be clean, so they can go, go in their home and eat some lamb that the Lamb of God is right next to you, and they don't see it. Um, Pilate claims control throughout the entire dialogue, uh, but as, you, as it becomes quite apparent, he has no control at all. Uh, the only reason that he lets them crucify Jesus is because he doesn't want them to A, go rat on him to Caesar that he wasn't uh, helping, and B, because he doesn't want to riot. He doesn't, you, I think sometimes we get a misconception of Pilate that when he says he tried to free him, it wasn't because Pilate was a good guy. Pilate was a gigantic, uh, self-centered human being. Uh, he only cared about himself. He did not care about Jesus. And so in this discourse, it's just, it's very funny to see that Pilate thinks he's, he has power, but he really has none. Um, and the Jews seemingly almost have more power than he does. Um, Again, both Pilate and the Jews think that they can take Jesus' life, which obviously John highlights, no, you can't. Only Jesus can lay down his own life. You guys have no authority, and only that which the Father has given you. And, and Pilate, he tries to jab at, at the Jews every chance he gets. Hey, here's, you know, he, keeps, he keeps referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. And clearly the Jews hate that because they do not recognize him as their king. And so Pilate keeps saying, hey, here's your king of the Jews. And obviously the picture you're meant to see is you have a Jesus who's beaten, weak, maybe probably very frail looking. Um, and, you know, Pilate's standing there knowing that, oh, well, his king is much more powerful. You know, Caesar's much more greater. And then here's your guys' Jewish, weak, pathetic king. You know, how, how ridiculous are you guys? Um, constantly trying to jab at them. But yet, obviously, who was the king? Jesus was the ultimate king, and none of them saw it. Um, again, everyone claims that Rome and Caesar have the ultimate authority, yet as you're going to see emphatically, John is going to counteract that and say, no, it's clear as all day, Jesus had the authority in this moment, and no one took it from him. He determined the outcome of the events. 
uh, lots of mocking that goes on between the Jews and Pilate. Uh, you know, Pilate says to them, take him yourself, judge and crucify him. He knew very well they couldn't do that. They did not have capital punishment rights. Rome took that away from them. So for him to tell them that was obviously ridiculous and just jabbing them again saying, oh yeah, that's right, you guys are a dominated people. We're over you. You can't do what you want. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, and then again, he keeps poking at them, the king of the Jews, just insulting them all the more that your king is a weak, frail, pathetic carpenter from Galilee. You know, how weak are you? But then the Jews turn it back on him. Um, when they say, well, what's the accusation? Well, he made himself out to be the son of God. This actually causes fear in Pilate, not because Pilate is afraid of the God of Israel, but because Pilate is a superstitious man who worships all kinds of gods. And so for you to tell him that this man that you're about to crucify could have divine abilities, it frightened him. Um, and that's when he starts to grill Jesus. Where are you from? What are you, what are you doing? What's happening? Um, but again, Pilate's not coming at it from a, a spiritual revival point of view. He's coming at it to make sure he saves his own skin, and he's not potentially killing one of the gods of, of Rome or something of that sort. Um, but the Jews knew they would have had a relationship with Pilate of some degrees, and they would have known that, and they played it up on him to frighten him. And then, of course, uh, you see when they, the Jews yell out to him, you are no friend of Caesar, um, that would have been a huge claim to make. Uh, sedition was generally put down uh, with the death penalty. So if, and it was not uncommon for the Jews to file complaints up to Rome and for it to get to Caesar. So for them to say, you're no friend of Caesar, that could have been an official complaint sent to Caesar, um, and he could have been killed for it. So that would have probably frightened him beyond anything else, uh, and the Jews knew that, and they played that to their advantage. And you're also meant to see that during this trial, uh, the depths of Israel's depravity is, is almost unbelievable, uh, where Israel is at this time and day in their relationship to Yahweh. Uh, they, when they bring Jesus to Pilate, they make the claim that if this man were not a criminal, um, in the original language there, the word criminal is actually, uh, it means evil, morally reprehensible, or bad. They believe, they believe this man is, is, is the complete opposite of who he is. Um, they're totally blind through the beauty and majesty of who Jesus is because they are so corrupt in their theology and their method of belief and um, their understanding of the law that they just cannot see that this man who heals the blind, who raises the dead, um, is the Messiah. And then this, or this, this dialogue between Barabbas being set free over Jesus, um, there's lots of subtleties going on in there that we don't have time to hit on. Um, but essentially, it's obviously there's, there's the forefront um, idea you're supposed to get that they're choosing a murderer, a rebel, an, um, an insurrectionist who, who would have caused problems for them. Um, if you're harboring insurrectionists, the Romans would have come in and they would have just started killing people. They wouldn't have cared. They just want to get rid of it and they want to squash it so that civil order comes back. And so for them to choose him over Jesus was obviously monumentally ridiculous. Um, but more importantly, um, in the dialogues previously, and I think it's chapter 8, uh, when they start talking about when Jesus says, your father is Satan. And they say, no, our father's Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If you were, you would do the things of Abraham. And, and Bar Barabbas' name is supposed to have connotations of son of the father. Um, some renditions will say that his name even has um, um, Jesus Barabbas his, was his full name. And so you're meant to just see these huge contradictions between you know, good and evil. Um, if you really want to go down that path, you'll end up in the garden between choosing right from wrong. Um, but there's lots of subtleties there. Um, that you're meant to hone in on. But clearly, Israel's choosing what's good in their own eyes. The problem of humanity since the time of the beginning, they're choosing what they think is right, what wisdom is good for them, and ignoring what God is trying to show them. 
And then obviously their claim is, well, he made him out to be the son of God because he was the son of God. If they knew their scriptures and they knew where they were coming from, they would have recognized from day one who this man was, but they were so blinded by their pride, by their idolatry, by their hatred that they couldn't see it. And then the one that I think is supposed to send tingles up your spine, we have no king except Caesar. I mean, this should almost revolt you to the point of dry heaving because how, how far have you gone? How, how much disdain do you have for Yahweh? And your mind is instantly, I think, supposed to be called back to, um, my, I go to Ezekiel 8, when God leads Ezekiel through all the abominations of the land, when they're worshiping false idols in the temple, when they're bowing to um, fertility deities in front of the temple, when they're doing all of this apostasy, and God says, you know, look what they've done. They have forgotten me. And because they think that the Lord doesn't see me, And I think you're meant to pull on those connotations in this moment. The Jews don't think God is paying attention. They don't think God can see them. But he's right there in their midst. He's fully aware of what's happening, and they just don't care. Because they want their view of the world to be upheld and not God's. And then obviously you go back to the days when Israel demands a king. 1 Samuel 8, 7. uh, God saying to Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. From the very beginning, God has meant to be the one that we worship, the one that we idolize, the one that we hold up and give all of our um, praise and honor to. And throughout human history, we have rejected that. The Israel's being a prime example of that. And you're meant to then call on these connotations. At the ultimate moment, when humanity kills the incarnation of God, they have rejected him fully and completely. And, and yes, Israel was there at the time, but you know we all fall into that. You're, you're, you're men, we're all partakers of that. Um, but thanks to the beauty of the cross, we don't stay there. And ultimately, again, Jesus is in full control. 1837, when he's in his dialogue with Pilate, and Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is, is saying to them, you know, Pilate thinks he knows what the truth is. The Israelites think they know what the truth is. Jesus is the only one in this moment who knows what the truth is. And that truth is true power. That truth is what, is what gives you true life. You know, think of the past uh, classes we've had on, on all these, uh, you know, the, the understanding of what life really means, you know, uh, when we spent time talking about Zoe and those sorts of things. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Your ability to end my physical life is not power. Your ability to control civil disputes and trials, that's not power. True power is, is having the truth of the scriptures and having an understanding of who God really is. And Jesus is, is fully tapping into all of this. Um, and he's in control throughout the entire dialogue. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time because we're already further along than I would like to be um, on the crucifixion because uh, I think it's been um, addressed significantly well um, in years past and most of us I think are familiar with the physical acts of what occurred. Um, but just to quickly touch on it, uh, Jesus was flogged potentially twice, um, certainly once very severely. And whenever someone was convicted or sent to be crucified, generally um, they got the most severe flogging uh, that the Romans would do. And um, as you probably are familiar, the whips would contain metal or bone or lead. They wanted to put shards in it so that it uh, it would more readily easily grab flesh um, as they would whip, and it would rip it off. Um, It was not uncommon for um, bone to be exposed during these processes, whether that's on their back or their legs. Um, So much flesh and muscle would have been torn off um, that I don't know how you would explain the sight you would see medically, but it would be quite gruesome. The crown of thorns, um, 
depending on who you read, uh, some people think it was made from a date palm. Um, it has thorns that grows at the base. They can be upwards of 12 inches long. Um, they're very sharp. Uh, I believe different types of them can be toxic. Um, and it would have been obviously quite painful to have that uh, depressed onto your head. And then you get, uh, we're told that then the, the Romans, uh, soldiers come out and they slap him and they beat him and they mock him. Um, this would have been a, a significant amount of men uh, coming through and I can only imagine they all took their time because uh, if, if they're in Jerusalem, they were probably bored because there was no war to fight. Um, and so they would have probably taken quite a bit of advantage of the situation. Um, so Jesus is then led through the streets um, out to Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull, and he likely would have carried the cross member on his shoulders as he went along. Uh, the vertical piece typically was already embedded into the ground, and they would hoist them up and then nail that cross member to it, um, and they would put a little footrest on the bottom where they would nail their feet to, um, and this was not out of a humane effort, but this was out to um, increase their agony. Because as you had some support, you could push off more and uh, hold off asphyxiation for a little bit longer. Uh, but it only prolonged um, their suffering. Because um, as you probably heard before, the crucifixion is considered to be one of the most uh, inhumane ways to die. Uh, because it can last, um, for some people, uh, their crucifixion would have lasted days. Um, we're told, I think, uh, the longest I saw was three days. Uh, it's quite, quite terrible. And then Jesus writes on above what his, what his being guilty of. You know, they would put on a little tablet above on the cross to indicate to people walking by what their crime was. And, Jesus, or, and Pilate writes, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Again, very ironic because Pilate speaks more truthfully uh, than he ever would have imagined. Uh, considering that just moments ago he scoffed and said, well, what is truth? Um, well, he just wrote it. And then when you get to Jesus' final words... And he says, it is finished. Um, what he's trying to pull you to is the father's will was completed. The son's obedience was perfected. Um, everything that the father intended to happen occurred. Um, God and the son were in full control from since the beginning, uh, since before, you know, Genesis. They've been in control. This has been the plan from day one. And then you think back to stories like Joseph, uh, when he was sold into slavery, and then at the end of his life, he tells his brothers, you know, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And this is a prime, prime example of that. What these people intended for evil, God fully intended for good. Um, and then again, no bones were broken because Jesus was the Passover lamb. And when they would take of the Passover, they could not break the bones. Um, you were told not to because uh, then you couldn't, you couldn't eat of that lamb. And Jesus, John, several of the Gospels will specifically tell you his bones were not broken because uh, they wanted the bodies off of the cross before Passover occurred because they would have been considered, they wouldn't have been able to partake. It would have made things unclean. And so they would break the legs of the individual so that they could no longer push up and get air. Uh, but Jesus had already died before that point. And then you're told about his side being pierced, blood and water flowing out. Lots of implications there, which we don't have time for. Uh, please spend time on that and you'll be pleasantly surprised, I'm sure. Um, and so what I really wanted to hit on today, and we're already going to be out of time, was what does his death really mean? And I'm pulled back to John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. And I'd like to read that with you for you quickly. 
Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life, uh, which, as you may recall, is this word suke, which means yourself, uh, the one who loves his suke loses it. And the one who hates his suke in this world will keep it to eternal zoe. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father, the father will honor him. Um, at first glance, you're like, what does that have to do with his death? It's kind of weird. Some Greeks want to come and say hey to Jesus, and Jesus goes off on some theological rant. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but you'll notice that that, that that particular, his answer to their question, um, it does answer their question. The Greeks want to come see him. And Jesus is thinking of the meta picture. Well, how do I get the Greeks? How do I get the Gentiles? How do I get the non-Jews to come see me? I need to find a way to bring them into the fold. And so when Jesus is this grain of wheat, which falls into the earth in his burial, and then he dies on the cross, and this very act is what now allows the, the, the Gentiles to come into his fold. Um, you think about it, the way that that answer is given, without this act, without this self-sacrifice of Jesus, then the Godhead remains alone. Humanity is not redeemed. There is no way for heaven and earth to be reunited again like in the garden. And so we're off on our own. We're destitute. We're lost. And Jesus, fully aware of this, um, goes to the cross lovingly um, so that fruit and abundance and a harvest can be reaped because of his actions. Um, and so... And again, this ends up becoming a stumbling block to many of the Jews to think, oh, the Gentiles can't come in. Well, that's exactly one of the main reasons why Jesus goes through this, is to not just save, you know, the family of Israel, but to save all of humanity. Um, And then just quickly, because we're already running out of time, Jesus is directly linking his glorification here with our own individual selves. So as I am more, if I want to be my own authority, my own king, and I'm full of pride, I'm full of idolatry, and the only hope I have is a complete loss of everything. I have nothing to hope in. But if I lay all of myself down at the cross, then I can truly be alive. And again, going back to what these words mean in the original Greek, the suke is not just, oh, well, if I, if I do all the checklist items, then I'm good to go. No, throw that away. Toss that out. If I fully give my entire self over to the cross, then I become more than I ever could hope to be. This is your wills, your wants, your desires, your, your, anything that, that you consider to be part of who you are. And too many times we take this to mean, oh, that means I can't have anything good. God doesn't want me to be happy. Oh, completely false. Because as you come to Jesus, you are transformed into his likeness. And what did Jesus want to do? He wanted to go to the cross for us. And you're meant to know this becomes your, your motivation. This becomes your desires. If you don't look, the cross isn't, oh, that's how I get home. The cross is how I become like Jesus, how I spread this message into the world. Because then what happened on the cross? The veil is torn in two, and the kingdom of heaven pours into the world. And that kingdom is here today. It's now. It's been here since this time of the cross. And we're partakers of that. We get, to ex- we get to experience it um, now, not fully, but we get to partake of it and then hope for the day when it's completely fulfilled. And, and, if, this, and if the cross to you is nothing more than my moments with Jesus, um, spend more time with it. Because if the cross makes you think of your individual self and not of others, then you're not seeing, I don't think, the cross in its full context. Because the cross, if anything, teaches you, go love the world the way that I love them. And one of the commentators I heard, which 
it really rang true to me. Um, you know, we're all familiar with John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet, what often happens is we think of God as this, this wrathful, angry person. And so instead of God so loving the world, God so hated the world that he killed his only son. And that is not what the scriptures are teaching you. The scriptures from the beginning, throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, are showing you a God full of love, full of compassion. And we're going to blow through because, as always, I don't have enough time. But what I wanted to really get at was um, Jeremiah nine twenty three through 24. And he's having this dialogue between um, Jeremiah and lots of bad things are happening. But what God is saying here is, um, this is what the Lord says, Let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy. And that's the word hesed, which we talked about several weeks ago. Justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Mercy, justice, and righteousness is exactly what Jesus came and did and what he brought into this world. And that's what God is seeking from us. You know, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You don't have to know all the answers. It's just the fact that you're taking a step closer, that you're denying yourself, you're picking up your cross, and you're following Jesus. And spend time through um, the letters of Paul, um, through, all, through the rest of the New Testament, and all they do is they reflect back on this moment. The entire, in, you know, Paul will say he died in accordance with the scriptures. He's not saying he died in accordance with a few prophecies. He died in accordance with the entire point of the scriptures. The entire Old Testament points to this moment. The entire New Testament reflects back on this moment. The cross is not an event that occurred. The cross is the event which occurred. And, we're, and, and you're supposed to wrestle with it. It's very difficult. The cross is confusing to a lot of people because it seems like a contradiction. How could suffering, pain, and, and agony be the enthronement of our king? No other king is ever enthroned like that, and that's the point. Because we don't know how to enthrone kings. We don't know how to rule, but Jesus does. And you're meant to follow in that example. Being a Christ follower is not joy and peace and skipping around all day. It may be that on some moments, because in true uh, relationship with the Lord, you find peace you find this inner reflection that makes you full of joy because you know who your Savior is. But at the same time, things will hurt. Things will be painful, but that pain can be turned into joy um, in the same way that I think Jesus did. And so I still have a few moments, and I'll keep my promise. I'm not going to go through my own so what. Um, I want to pour it back on you. I think it's important that we take time to reflect as individuals, and again as a community, what does the death of Jesus mean? Because it is the foundational stone of our beliefs and our faith and why we do what we do. Um, And I think it's important, and I think it would be helpful um, if we share one to another what the death of Jesus means. And so I open it up to you for anyone who would like to share. um, What does it mean to you in your time and place in your life that Jesus died for you? Yes, sir. Yeah, so God did something for us that we couldn't do ourselves because we tend to be so hard-hearted, so self-centered, so idolatry of our own selves that we can't see what he did. And I did hear an interesting quote the other day that I'm going to, that I really enjoyed. Someone said, what's the, 
Um, what's the cure, the antidote to idolatry? They said it was worship. Because you can't be idolatry about yourself if you're giving your worship over to God. And I thought that was a beautiful thought. Anybody else? Well, I hope that you spend time reflecting on it in your own time. Because um, if you take away nothing else this morning, I want you to take away uh, this. The death of Jesus is vast. It is, it is very complex. It is not just you're given salvation. It covers a gambit of things. Um, and people throughout time have tried to come up with theories about how it works. Um, you can Google atonement theories and you'll, you'll lose hours if you, <laughs> you spend on that. Um, but throughout time, people have tried to understand what exactly is happening. Why did this have to occur? Why did, you, why did God have to come in the flesh and come to earth and die so that I could be made right? And while I think it's a culmination of a lot of different themes and ideas, and by no means can I, can, could I give it justice today, um, ultimately, there's, there's mysteries to the Lord. There is unknowns to Jesus. And, and you don't have to believe these things blindly or without faith. Um, but when you spend time in the scriptures, you start developing a relationship with the Lord that uh, no one can teach you. Uh, no words of mine could help you, nor, or, or Bob, who's not here today. But there's things that happen when you spend time in prayer, spend time in the word. Um, the spirit works in you. You're given better understanding, better revelations. And, and I would highly suggest that. And one thing that at least that I pulled from my own childhood, um, and we're going to be done in just a moment, is... If you see the cross as nothing more than an angry God punishing somebody in place of me, um, I think you'll be limited in how you view Jesus. If you see the cross as I just have to, I just have to be morally good, I just have to do what's right, I think you will miss the richness of the cross. Because the cross is, is not about rules and requirements. The cross is a transformation of who you are, a genuine inner self change. And I don't, know, I don't know how to give that justice, but as you spend time in this, your desires become the desires of God. Your wants become his wants, and then the morality, then the right and wrong. That becomes a byproduct. That just becomes your instinct. It's not something you begrudgingly do or something that you don't desire, but it becomes your motivation for life. And so ultimately the cross becomes this freedom-giving, bondage-breaking, kingdom-coming power. These are not just fancy devotional words. These are not just biblical phrases we say. This is real, powerful life that you can tap into today. Um, and we're going to continue into the resurrection next week, but I, would, I, I hopefully pray um, that you can spend time in the Word, you can spend time with this, and you can see what John is trying to get across um, in this moment. And because I like to give resources, um, there's a New Testament scholar, his name's N.T. Wright. Uh, he's written many books. Uh, the one on the right, uh, The Day the Revolution Began, is a great one if you want a resource. Uh, he goes into the different atonement theories, and he talks about how to see the crucifixion of Jesus, not in a new way, but maybe in a way that um, is more helps you, helps you just to understand it better uh, based on our society and our cultural context. And the other ones are good. I read those ones. I like those. Um, so just something for you to use in your own personal studies. Uh, thank you for your attention, and we'll get ready for worship.